cannot face life. They turn to drugs, they turn to alcohol, they turn to all kinds of ways to insulate themselves from life, the troubles they face economically, relationship-wise, in all facets of life. We think we're living in a wonderful world of electronics, and yet people are miserable, and they're hiding behind all these gimmicks and gugas, so they do not have to face life. We pray, and we have been promised by God, that if we will turn to Him, He will turn His face to us, He will bless us, He will heal us, He will help us, He will strengthen us, and He will immortalize us. And yet we fight Him at every turn, it seems. It is difficult. One of the most inspiring times in the history of mankind happened on the day of Pentecost after Christ's resurrection from the dead. Cloven tongues of fire came down in the building in which they sat. They began to speak in languages, the people coming in from afar to keep Pentecost, other countries could understand in their own language. An incredible miracle of speaking and hearing. Thousands of people began to repent, to be baptized. Sometimes we don't want to hear about our problems. We just want to be inspired, maybe. We don't want to hear about repenting. Yet it is ironic that in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, when Peter asked, or people asked Peter what they should do, verse 38, he said, repent and be baptized. So even on that most powerful of days, the sermon was about sin and repentance, if you will. That should be an inspirational thing. To get rid of that which does not look like God. To come to look more like Him by changing the way that we are. So if you don't think a sermon or sermonette about repentance, change, fits on Pentecost, then you haven't read Acts 2 lately. But I'm not going to go there today. Sigh of relief. We hear that quite a lot. But let us understand, and make no mistake, when God does begin to move with His mighty hand and perform miracles and answer many of the prayers that are on our lips, at the same time, and I've said this before in other ways, he requires more. So even as the church just began on that day of Pentecost in Acts 2, 3,000 baptized, converted in one day, 5,000 another day, the church was growing by leaps and bounds. People began to understand, finally. Even the disciples began to understand on that day. 
They did not know what Christ was talking about. I read it this morning. I forget just where it was, where one of the men was talking. About how he told how he had come to this earth to live and to die. That he would be betrayed of men. And it said the disciples didn't get it, didn't understand what he was talking about. We're clueless, he said. Recently the question came up, well, on Passover, if that was a holy day, why in the world did the disciples ask or think that Judas might have gone to buy something for the feast? Don't we grasp that they didn't get anything? They just didn't get it. He could tell them who he was and what he was going to do and what would happen, and it went over their heads. Clueless. Until the day of Pentecost, when God gave His Spirit, and then they began to comprehend and to understand. This day pictures the coming of His Holy Spirit upon mankind to dwell in them for the first time, with a few exceptions like Abraham and David of the past. It had been with them, but then it was in them. And they began to understand. And other people whom God was calling. No man can come except God call. Their minds had been closed and suddenly they were open. Something could actually penetrate. And by the thousands, God began to open minds. But at the same time, despite let the wheat grow with the tares... That is another analogy for a different time. He started pulling weeds out before they had hardly even started. Remember Acts 5. All these new converts, and shortly thereafter, Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead for lying. So we look for and want God with us. And we want His blessings and the drama that comes with some of the Scriptures that God promises He will fulfill here at the end time. But let us be aware that there may be a weeding out process at the same time. If the rest of the flock is to grow, the crippled, the lame, to use the other analogy, have to be Removed, or in the case of a garden, weeded. Let us be sure that we are not pulled out at the roots. Because God is going to expect more of you and me very shortly now than ever He has before. I hope we grasp that. I hope we are preparing for that. I hope even as we prayed... Most of us probably, before Passover and Pentecost this year, that this might be the year that the set time had come to favor Jerusalem and Zion. And I think in some ways we have been, but I don't think yet in the way that I fully expect from the flavor of the Scriptures about it. And we may yet have some time. But let us not waste that time feeling sorry for ourselves, complaining about our lot in life, our aches, our pains, our troubles, our tribulations, and our trials. 
but in growing, changing, overcoming, and preparing, so that when that time comes, we will be wheat instead of tares. We will be carrots instead of weeds. God allows time and space for change and repentance. And we all have plenty to do to prepare. That said, I want to read a couple of communications I've had with some people recently. I've told you a few things about how we've had more positive activity on the uh, website in the last three or four months than we'd had in the last three or four years combined, really. Is that a faint stirring? Is God beginning to open a few minds to understand? I've been communicating with an individual who is seeing some things you've never seen before. The mind is opening and questioning, and not questioning from a negative standpoint, but a positive one. This individual is very excited about what is being learned. I'll not use the name, but it is very encouraging to me to see some of the things that we've studied, like the order of Passover, the name Emmanuel, uh, these things being addressed and people are seeing it instead of just throwing it in the trash. It is not a time for any of us to be negative whatsoever. And we'll see that before we're done today. I made a comment in an email a day or so ago about how what we are learning is almost like starting over. When we first began to understand the truth, we were so excited about it. We wanted to tell our friends and our relatives, and we've all experienced that, and we've recounted it here before. And how they would turn against us. And what we thought they would be so excited about, they hate. And Herbert Armstrong did give us a very good foundation of truth. But by no means did he restore all things. We have learned much in the last few years, and we have much yet to learn. We must always grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. It seems that in the church, for the most part, when people study the Bible, it is more like a review rather than a quest and a thirst for more. It's like we can read it and we can think the same thoughts we always thought when we read that scripture, that verse. We're perhaps just reaffirming that that one was so. So we read it and we move on. If we're not careful, we will never grow, we will never learn, we will just review that which we already know. Did not Paul say in Hebrews, it's time to leave the milk and move on to the meat, not leaving behind the principles that we've learned, but move on and learn more. And that is a challenge that we have before us, not to be complacent, not to be Laodicean, not to be ho-hum, but to move forward. We resist that by nature. 
We like the status quo. Any of you who have been in a boat do not like to see it rocked. Some of us have the propensity for rocking boats. When we're standing where the girls start getting a little bit afraid, I like to grab them like that and scare them. It's just fun for me. But we like it the way it is. We do not like to be shaken out of our comfort zone, if you will. So I commented to this person that it is almost like starting over. And here's the answer I got back. Yes, it is like starting over. I was in seventh grade when I first started reading the plain truth. Learned those things, was in the church all those years, from 13 on. And now this individual is way, way, way beyond that. And I won't say how old, because you might meet the individual someday. And she is female, persuasion, so we don't talk about those things. I wish I could move out there and be a part of a community of brethren, but right now I don't have the finance or the finances to do it. And I'd like to be rebaptized at the Feast of Tabernacles. And you should have another check in the mail. I became disillusioned last Feast of Tabernacles with those that I was attending with. And I sent part of the tithes that she had saved back to you with the thought that I divided among the groups doing the work of God. But I can't find anyone. Isn't that sad? That someone who is on a quest to learn, to grow, has extreme difficulty finding a place where that can be accomplished today? Where church is basically simply reviewing that which has been and trying to tiredly do that which has already been done and without much result. That is a sad state of affairs. Now, I'm here to tell you that will not float with God. We must do more. Okay? God is looking for those who are growing, who are learning, who are seeking. Those are the ones he's looking for. Now, you would not still be here if you were completely stuck in what I just described. Because we have pushed the envelope a great deal. We have entered into territory that most will not go into. And we have proven some things from the Bible, in the Bible that were there all along that we never saw. And you have been of a mind to study it through, to check it out, and to find that indeed it was so and make the changes. So in a way I'm preaching to the choir, aren't I? But I do not want us to be lulled into complacency or because things take a little longer than we might have thought, we 
begin to take a jaundiced look at things, be a little bit negative, begin to think, oh, well, and sort of give up, though not quitting entirely. Yes, I heard, this is the gun lap, for many, many years in Worldwide Church of God. And it wasn't time for the gun lap. But you know, every day is a gun lap, isn't it? Every day is a day that I have to get out of bed and be what I ought to be in spite of myself. And I have to run hard to stay ahead of myself. So every day is a challenge. But this individual is so happy to begin to see and hear the things that we have been seeing and hearing. And I find that very encouraging. There's a group of people in Africa and Kenya of 80, I think I mentioned. Not all 80 years old, but 80 of them. That's more than we are here today. And they are so excited. Now, I have gotten emails for years from people in Kenya, Tanzania, uh, Uganda, different places in Africa. And I know that they are religious hobbyists in many cases who are simply looking for handouts. They are looking for anything we will send, tapes that they can erase and sell, or whatever. And I understand their grinding poverty. They barely have enough to eat and often do not have enough to eat. So they're desperate, and if they can con Americans, that's a pretty good game to them. This group so far has approached it differently. The first memo I got said, we've been going through the Church of God websites, and yours is the only one we can find that's hard-hitting and tells it like it is. And that in itself is a sad commentary. When God says, cry aloud, spare not and tell my people their sins, and they look for that kind of preaching and cannot find it. Now I was told today, before I got up here, not to yell. For what good that would do. And I don't intend to. But can't we get intense? Can't we talk like we mean it? Can't we emphasize things? Can we tell it like it is? There are people who appreciate that. And there are people out there looking for that. And if they can't find it, then I think we ought to provide it. So we shout. In a recent email, this is from Friday. This is Nicodemus Oroko Narwati from Kenya. He says, hello, brother in the family of faith. Now, these people are keeping uh, the Sabbath, the holy days. They're keeping Pentecost today, not next week, as most in the church of God are. 
Greetings and blessings to you. Much thanks for your letter. We have been praying. Uh, part of this is cut off, and I, I, I don't remember the exact words. Uh, but he's talking about praying for us over here. Uh, regardless of the troubling inflation here, we are doing okay. God is always faithful to us. And, and I think he said something about it being blessed as you serve the eternal. Yes, you are correct that our electric grid, grid is indeed different from yours. Uh, and they know that if they plug in a, an MP3 or player, it will malfunction unless they have the right electricity. And he said they didn't have speakers to hook up. Uh, but we're sending them an MP3 player along with a bunch of CDs so that they can listen to the sermons. Because they don't have computers. He doesn't have a computer. He has to go to an internet cafe, which is expensive. And he's even called on a cell phone several times, wanting to stay in close touch with us. What an incredible, positive, wonderful attitude. They're learning. They're excited. They want to hear more. Please. I, I went two days without answering him. He says, I was about to write you. It's like he couldn't wait to hear more. I wrote him. Recently, someone had asked some questions about where is Jerusalem and is it over there, or is it over here, and some of these things we've been talking about. So I wrote a three or four page email, I guess, explaining a lot of things, and I went ahead and carbon copied it to these people. Now that's pretty stiff stuff the first time you hear it, right? We have been greatly blessed and enriched by the sermon you copied to us. It is helping us in our understanding on His Holy Word. We are happy that you remembered to copy the sermon to us, that we might be rooted and established in the knowledge and truth of the Word of God. Uh, and the rest is cut off. I don't know what he said there. We wish you a blessed and restful Sabbath. Say hi to the congregation there. Hi. Uh, and we support and pray for them. Hope to hear from you. Keep on praying for us that utterance and boldness may be given us in telling others of the wonderful truths we're learning. God's blessing and peace to you, your family, and the body of Christ. Thankfully and hopefully, Brother Nicodemus. There are others, a small group now, who are anticipating attending the feast. Several want to be rebaptized. Not that the first baptism was not valid and God gave His Spirit. I do believe He did. But we do hope for God with us, which is what Emmanuel means. And to be baptized in His name, not the mistranslated Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, or Spirit, either one. Because the other Scriptures don't say that. In the name of Christ. And when we understand Emmanuel, then that's... An even greater upgrade, I think. Not just God is salvation, Yeshua, but God with us, Emmanuel. So we've learned some things that other people are finding exciting. Now, I have asked, I think we talked about it once in Bible study a little bit, several people, and mentioned to everybody in general, though not too many are here at Bible study because of employment and so on. But uh, 
uh, writing down some of these things that we are finding about Zion, about Jerusalem, about a lot of subject we've discussed recently. And some of you are doing that. But if everyone were to turn those in, and there was a little here and a little there and a little from somewhere else, I would have an organizational problem beyond my wish to cope with. So it has been suggested that we put up a page on the Internet where you can enter information and it can be edited there and we can put in a lot of different categories of things that need to be researched, things we need to find out for sure if they are or are not. Some of the things that we have begun to believe might need to happen, like building a physical temple, for instance, needs to be proved out one way or the other. Now, let me cite you an example. In 1996, when we first began to realize that the Zion spoken of in the Bible could not be the one on the outside wall of the old city of Jerusalem in the Middle East. Because the Scripture simply did not fit that location. The Psalms, to name a few things, talk about the towers of Zion. There were no towers there. There were a few tombstones in the Zion over there when I surveyed it. It talks about the heights of Zion, as in this picture, and they are not there. It talks about how Zion is the joy of all the land, and it doesn't fit over there at all. It is a, basically a graveyard that very few people visit, and certainly not the joy of all the land. There are more people that visit this place on this picture behind me here in a year than any other national park in our whole system. That has not always been the case. I think Grand Canyon, Yellowstone, perhaps Yosemite have been ahead of it at times. But I was told last year that more people visited Zion than any other national park. A lot of people haven't even heard of it. But what a beautiful place. Now, is that the one spoken of in the Psalms and the rest of the Scriptures? We need to know. If I am putting these sermons out on the airwaves and on the website for anybody in the world to see who wants to, I need to know that it is fact. Not guess, not supposition, not daydreaming, not fantasy, but fact. And I am calling upon you to help prepare a new sermon series. I need help doing it. It is a monumental task to put all this together and to put it together in an organized fashion. Now, let's take, for example, the series on Babylon and showing that the United States is the present leader of the Babylonian system of Satan on this earth because there are specific prophecies to, about Babylon in Revelation 18 and other places 
about how they will be economically and militarily destroyed. Now, of whom is that speaking? It's important to know, isn't it? (coughs) Who God says He's about to destroy? And could it be me? Could it be us? And we went through, Scripture after Scripture, Jeremiah 50, 51, where it talks about how this Babylon that is about to be destroyed is the hammer of the whole earth. And we weeded it out. Is that speaking of Thailand? Is that speaking of China? Who has China hammered lately, militarily? Or Russia? To name a couple who are capable, perhaps, of hammering someone. Who does the hammering in the world these days? Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, start naming it. And has the capacity to hammer pretty much whomever we wish. And we seem to have our hammer set on Syria and particularly Iran and maybe Pakistan next. That's already in the news. So... When you use some of those Bible definitions, it isn't too hard to narrow down who it is God is talking about. Now, we need to do the same thing. Is Jerusalem in the Middle East the original Jerusalem? Do the definitions of the promised land fit over there? A lot of people think so. But you know what? Those people have never even looked to see. They never made the comparison. They've never examined all the Scriptures and compared them to what is there to see if that works. We just assumed that. Now, I have begun to see a lot of Scriptures that make me feel like that was wrong. I see a lot that talk about Jeremiah 9:11 about how Jerusalem would be desolate for many generations in the home of jackals. Same thing in Ezekiel 36:10 down to 33 and 32 and 33. Isaiah 61, Isaiah 58, cities of Judah being desolate and those who repair the breach and repair the desolate cities. On and on it goes. Those scriptures are there. You know what? I've quoted a lot of them in sermons over the last several years. And you know what else? I can't remember all of them. I can't remember all the things I've said. Now, if I were to sit down and start writing an email to someone like I did recently, three or four pages, I would remember some of them. But some of them would escape me. We need to have them all compiled and put together. Because knowledge is powerful. True understanding is powerful. Words of God compared with what we see before our eyes is powerful. It cannot be gainsaid. Remember Stephen giving that sermon and recounting the history of Israel and how those people there were an abomination before God and they could not gainsay it. They could not argue. They could not refute it. He told the absolute bedrock truth. So they just stoned him instead. That's okay. That's okay. We are going to tell the world the truth. 
And if they stone us, whose problem is that? Not ours. It's their problem. Stephen is going to be in the kingdom of God, sitting at the right, well, maybe not the exact right hand of Christ, but part of the bride. And those people are waiting for a resurrection in which they're going to hear some very unpleasant things said about them and to them. So who has the problem? Now, we're 2,000 years down the road and they'd all be dead anyway. So what difference did it make if he died a little early? You see, if you worry about that, you're still too concerned about this life and prolonging our human existence. And we're not putting God's eternal life and His kingdom first. So we worry about this life. Now, I'm not saying I want to walk out here and get stoned this afternoon. I don't. And I hope I live to see a lot of this stuff happen. But where are our values? Don't fear those that are able to kill the body, but he who is able to kill body and soul. Let's be sure our priorities are right. We need to understand that God is going to turn the world upside down. I want to quote a couple of verses along those lines here. Isaiah 24, verse 1. Behold, the Eternal makes the earth empty and makes it waste and turns it upside down and scatters abroad the inhabitants thereof. It says there will be few men left later in the chapter. He is going to do an incredible desolation on this earth and turn it upside down from what we see around us today. Isaiah 29. And here I want verse 16. Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay, Or shall the work say of him that made it, he made me not? Or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it, he had no understanding? Yet it is a little while, and Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest. That day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. And I don't think that's just physical impaired hearing and eyesight. We have most in the church today who cannot see beyond the end of their nose. They're blind and deaf to what God is about to do. They still think that if they keep sending in their tithes, praying, paying, and staying, that they will be funneled off to a place called Petra with smelly urine-filled caves and live there happily ever after, or happily for three and a half years before they're changed in a moment, the twinkling of an eye, and that's what life is all about. They do not realize all the things that must transpire between now and then. One of the major groups in terms of size, I think, probably today, I hear, is now proclaiming that the tribulation will start in October. No way. No way. There are too many things that have to happen before the tribulation can start. And you know what a lot of them are. 
There have got to be villages built. There must be much men and cattle there. The two witnesses must arise. They must measure the church, Jerusalem, and leave the court of the Gentiles out. Is that all going to happen before October? And the abomination of desolation set up in the temple? What temple? Jews haven't built one. Church hasn't built one. Is it just the spiritual temple, the church? I don't think so. It can't happen by October. Sorry, folks. He's telling them to sell their land, sell their home, sell everything they've got, give it to the church for a final gospel message before the tribulation starts in October, if I got the story straight. Garbage. It isn't biblical. It isn't going to happen that way. You know what? I hope I'm dead wrong. I hope by October we're all in a place of safety, with plenty to eat, plenty to drink, and having a good time. But I don't think so. Because that isn't what the Scriptures say. There is too much that has to happen. I think we have years before the tribulation will start. Jerusalem has to have the order to be built, does it not? Daniel 9. And it's 70 weeks from there. That's a year and a half before the abomination of desolation is set up. That takes us way past October alone, doesn't it? What Jerusalem? Isn't it already there? Isn't it built? What? How do you build Jerusalem? It's already there. What do these scriptures mean? Before I get too far afield, I want to go to Acts 17. Because we just read a couple places where God is going to turn the world upside down. How is He going to do it, brethren? Acts 17. Here you had the Pharisees, I guess it was, stirred up against the apostles. Verse 6, And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, saying, These that have turned the world upside down are come here also. So Paul, I think it was in Silas maybe, were there preaching in Thessalonica. And it says, These people are turning our whole world upside down. They're preaching Christ and Him crucified and resurrected. We want to hear about Abraham and how we are blessed to be the seed of Abraham. It got so intense they had to leave town. They went somewhere else, to Berea. And these same people were so incensed they came clear to Berea to tell those people to get rid of Paul and Silas. The point I want to make here, excuse me, is that God uses people to turn the world upside down. Are you ready for this? And are you ready for the opposition that it will bring? Matthew 10. And here, let's start about verse 16, I think it is. He's speaking to his disciples, the twelve. He had given them power, he said, at the beginning of the chapter. 
And then he said, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. How do you think sheep work out sent into a pack of wolves? They get chewed pretty badly. I'm sending you as sheep among wolves. Be you therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Remember when Nehemiah went in to examine Jerusalem when he had been given permission to go there and rebuild the wall? How he said, I told no man. And I went out in the middle of the night with just a very few trusted men on my horse. And I surveyed Jerusalem and the destruction that was there and made myself a plan about how we would rebuild the wall. He knew there would be enemies. He knew there would be opposition. He knew those, there would be those who would try to kill him. And sure enough, as they built the wall, they wound up having to have, what was it, half the people stand guard with swords and spears while the others worked, lest they be killed and stopped from building the wall. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. I think it's Isaiah 28, or, is it tw- or 29 maybe, says, Let your shadow be as the night. Be careful. Because there will be enemies. Let's read on. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And that happened to these men, didn't it? All save John were eventually killed by those people that he was sending them out to preach against. And you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. Isn't that what the two witnesses in the end time remnant are supposed to do? Witness against the world that God is God, the true God. What were these guys preaching? That Christ was the Son of God. Same message we need to preach today. And we're going to get the same kind of reaction guaranteed. But when they deliver you up, take no thought or anxious thought how or what you shall speak. For it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not you that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaks in you. And brother shall deliver up brother to death. The father, the child. And the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. Your own children will try to have you killed. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endures to the end shall be saved. Sounds pretty grim. Matthew 24. Verse 9. He talks here about nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, pestilences, earthquakes, wars and rumors of wars. Then, when these things have come to pass, shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. And you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. This is in a very end time context about the abomination of desolation being set up. And the two witnesses preaching the gospel around the world as a witness. And then the end shall come. 
It ends three and a half years after they're killed in the streets of the true Jerusalem. Many shall be, be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise and deceive many. And because sin shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Now, did you hear me a while ago? I said, we're going to put up a page on the Internet. And we're going to have a list of questions there that need to be researched and answered. And you know what? That page cannot be made unavailable to those providing the Internet service, like Yahoo or Google, Google, some of those. They can go there if they want to, and they can read that. And if you give your email address and you put things on there that you have researched, then your name will be there too, not just mine. Are you ready for this? Are you ready to be a part of finding the truth and then preaching it far and wide and shouting it from the housetops as Christ told them to do? Do you want to duck and run and hide or are you ready to set your light on a hill to be seen? We want God's intervention. We want His healing. We want His blessings. But are we ready for the exposure? Because when He begins to move to bless His faithful remnant, the world will then begin to move against it. That's just the way it is. If we move to serve God... Satan will move to remove us. We will not be only hated of all men. According to Revelation 12, when Satan is finally cast down for the last time out of heaven where he has been accusing us anyway, he is going to come and try to kill us. And if we, are gone, if we make it to a place of safety, he will go out and try to kill everyone else who worships God and keeps his Sabbath. His commandments. You know the only way you can win is serve God with all your heart and come under His protection and be accounted worthy to escape all these things. Now the apostles preached that and a lot of people were martyred. A lot of people fell away some people remain firm, faithful, and strong and will be part of the bride of Christ. We have the same conditions about to come upon us. And some will remain firm and faithful and obedient to God in heaven and put Him first in their lives. And I pray that every one of us here will be those Now, I want to give you a little example. I'm going to steal one of the juicy scriptures. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 8. 
Because this is a very, I guess, rudimentary one. A fairly easy one to discern and to figure out. Here God is asking to Israel to obey Him, to serve Him, and consider things in your heart about God. And He says in verse 7, If you will keep His commandments, verse 6, and fear Him, Verse 7, for the eternal your God brings you into a good land. A good land. Now keep your finger there, we'll be right back. But turn over to Numbers. Was it uh, 13 or 14? Let me get back there. 13, I... No, it's 14. Verse 7. And they spoke to all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it, that promised land that they were being offered, is an exceeding good land. To use an adverb in modern English, exceedingly good. Now, what does that mean? What is an exceedingly good land? That means a land that exceeds other lands. A land that is better than other lands. A land perhaps that is far away and above better than those you might compare it to. Okay? Exceptional. Exceedingly good. So that adds a little strength to Deuteronomy 8 and verse 7 where it says a good land. All right, here's how we research and here's how we compare. If I were looking for this land that God is promising, and I was told it is going to be an exceedingly good land, where would I begin to look on the earth? Well, let's see. I might try the Sahara Desert. Ah, no, let's just weed that right out. That's not exceedingly good. I mean, if you like sand piles, uh, that's pretty good. But there's not much else there. All right, let's try Israel in the Middle East. Is that an exceedingly good land? Where it is just running over with good soil and water and minerals and all the good things that you would need... A pleasant place to be. You know what my reaction was when I got off the plane and began touring around that country? My reaction was, if this is the promised land, I'll pass. About as dry and arid and empty a land as you would find. This little valley we're in and these mountains we look at daily are heaven compared to most of that. And this isn't even a very good part of this land. If I were looking for an exceedingly good land, I'd leave the Middle East in a hurry. Big hurry. I'd go to Germany or England or Ireland or New Zealand or somewhere that was pretty and, produ and productive. See what I mean? Let's read on. A land of brooks of water, of fountains, springs, and depths. 
that spring out of valleys and hills, deep waters, big lakes, big rivers. All right, show me the Sea of Galilee, I'll show you the Great Lakes. Show me the Dead Sea, if that's what you think so big and beautiful and important. I'll show you Great Salt Lake. Many, many times over the size of the Dead Sea. Show me the Jordan River. Well, they call it a river. It's really just kind of a glorified creek. I could step across it in two steps. Maybe three. I'm short-legged. Show me that. I'll show you the Ohio, the Tennessee, the St. Lawrence, the Hudson, the Mississippi, Columbia, Snake, Colorado, Rio Grande, Yukon. The whole United, eastern United States is springs and rivers and water everywhere you look. Minnesota's the land of 10,000 lakes. Alaska's overrun with the stuff. Every draw has water in it. This is a land that is full of water. That is a land that you have to look hard to find a little creek beyond the Jordan Creek. A land of wheat and barley. They have a little irrigated area along the Jordan where they eke out some crops. We have from South Texas to the Canadian line and from Ohio to the Rocky Mountains of nothing but mile after mile, section after section of wheat and corn and barley and whatever you want to plant. Millions of acres of it. Hundreds of thousands of square miles of it. The breadbasket of the world goes on up into Canada, another part of Israel. The whole Pacific Northwest, the Willamette Valley, the Central Valley of California. Very productive lands. What does it say here? Vines, fig trees, pomegranates. Central Valley of California, South Texas, Florida, tropical fruits, oranges, melons, figs. I don't know whether there's any area on the earth that produces more wine and grapes than the Central Valley of California. France might beat it, but I don't know about that. But it needs researched. I don't want to just quote something and say, well, it could be. I want to know. I want it written down. I want to be able to quote it from some place that knows. Of olive oil and honey. A lot of olives in California. I was told by somebody that ought to know, but I don't have it confirmed, that the United States produces more honey than any other nation except perhaps China. A land of milk and honey. Why is Wisconsin called the dairy state? I have seen miles of storehouses of nothing but cheese and butter in Wisconsin. We have milk cows all over this country. Huge dairies. We produce butter and cheese to send over the, to the whole world. Is it a land flowing with milk and honey? How much of that do they have in the Middle East? And that is real. Very little. You know, they import almost everything they use there. Let's go on. 
a land wherein you shall eat bread without scarceness. We have so much wheat and so much corn and so much grain, we export millions of metric tons every year. There's no excuse in America for anyone to go hungry. Yet. Until these blessings are removed, which they very shortly will be. But that's where we are. That's where we've been. We can feed the world, if you will. Can the Middle East? No, they import most of their food. How much? I don't know. Somebody please research that. You shall not lack anything in it. Now, that's a pretty broad statement, isn't it? You shall not lack anything in it. That means that the promised land, the exceeding good land that would be given to Israel, would have everything you could possibly need. And you know, this land had that. The minerals, the agricultural production, the water, the beauty. We need not, if we didn't want to, import anything. We have oil here in Alaska and in Wyoming and in Montana and offshore that could keep this country running for centuries if it were not for politics. We have everything here you could possibly need. They don't have oil, and that Israel. A land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you may dig brass. Not import it, dig it. We have the Masabi Range around the Great Lakes. Incredible, vast metric tons, millions of them, of high-grade iron ore. We have it right here in southern Utah. Iron Mountain, it's called, in Iron County, just west of Cedar City. Hundreds of millions of tons proven to be there. We have the biggest copper mines in the world. Kennecott, some of those, Nevada and Utah. The Middle East, they have one little copper mine down by Elat that has produced a small amount over the years. But that is all the minerals they have, other than some dissolved potassium and whatever it was in the Dead Sea. Nothing to dig from the hills. No gold and silver. It talks about that a little further down here. Now, that's what we need. We need to go through the Bible with a fine-tooth comb and research out a subject and see what the Bible says about it and then make comparisons. Now, I used Israel over there, which everybody knows is the promised land. Oh, wait, not everybody. The Arabs don't think so. That's a subject that needs to be carefully researched. What case do the Arabs have for saying that's their land? What case do those Jews who are there, or Edomites, whatever they are, have for saying that's their land? 
Who was there first? The Jews have been there since 1948, we know. Who was first? Whose claim is right? What does the Bible say? We're going to go to do, to do a series on these subjects. We need to know whereof we speak. And you know, we've had a few who've said, Oh, come on, that couldn't be. I don't want to hear any more of that. All right? Let's take that as a challenge, brethren. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good, true, and right. When somebody says, that's baloney, I don't believe that for a minute. If I believe it, I need to be sure I've proved it. There can be no shadow of doubt. If I'm going to believe something, I want to prove it to be so. If I'm going to preach it, I need to prove it to be so. Now, I want this study to be objective. I want us to have a section in there where questions come up that we have no answer for. And then research that and find an answer, yes or no. Let's find out the truth, okay? What's wrong with the truth? Now, most of us are seeing some of these things. I think these three verses we just read are pretty clear. But how could that be talking about a land that doesn't even have any of these things? Well, then, where is it? If that doesn't fit there, where does it fit? That's just one small but very challenging set of three verses. It'll shake the foundations of some of the things we've assumed over the years. But there can be no room for gainsaying. Stephen spoke from the heart. Stephen spoke things that he had heard Christ and the apostles say that he knew to be true. If I'm going to get stoned, I want to get stoned for telling the truth. I want it to be worthwhile. Don't want to do it for the wrong reasons. I don't want to be stoned for telling a false story that I thought was right. Okay? You don't want to be killed by your friends and relatives, your children, betrayed by them for something that was not true. Do you? Then do we accept the challenge? I typed out just a few questions last night that need to be answered. Well, first I put the Israeli view as opposed to the Arab view about who has right to that little piece of real estate over there. What about Zion? Now, in the early times when we first began to understand some of this back in 96, we went through every verse in a word study that mentioned Zion and put them together in little papers. Some of you have seen it. But I don't think it was by any means complete enough. It needs to be better organized. Comparisons need to be made. That just basically kind of quoted the Scriptures, and you kind of tried to figure out, well, what is this talking about? 
I think we need to compare what they call Zion around that Jerusalem with this picture on the wall. See which fits the Bible. That's all that matters to me is the Bible. You can study archaeology, you can study petroglyphs, you can study this and science and that. And it can corroborate, it can add information, and that information can be good. But what does the Word of God say? And when you compare the Middle East or here with what this says, something needs to fit. Here, there, or Timbuktu, it needs to fit this Word. Wherever it is. Zion. Is it a place of refuge or is it Petra? Compare. I mean, just take that little subject. Compare everything in this word you can find about Petra. Find everything you can find about Zion. Put the scriptures down and see what you come up with. Okay? Look at the physical description of the things it says about Zion and the Psalms and all through the Bible. Where does it fit? Make the comparison. Jerusalem. What about the location? What about the prophecies about it? What about rebuilding it? What about physical Jerusalem, spiritual Jerusalem? What about the landform? What should it be? When you look up all the scriptures in this book about Jerusalem and read them carefully... And pick out the ones that have to do with any of those things I just mentioned about Jerusalem. What do you mean it's to be desolate for many generations? Nobody's ever read that, have they? I never heard it mentioned in the church, did you? It's like it just went right over it. Wasn't even there. How many times did I read it? Didn't see it. I heard Herbert Armstrong talk about how Babylon was going to be desolate, not an owl lived there. Why did he... Say that about Babylon, but he didn't read the one about Jerusalem. Never thought of it. Well, what do we do? Clip it out of there? Or do we find an answer? What about that? What about the others that talk about Jerusalem and the cities of Judah being desolate? Somebody needs to go through, look up every one of those where it says desolate or desolation about the cities of Judah, about Jerusalem. Categorize it. Quote the scriptures. Lay it out. And by doing it by subject, it's automatically organized, isn't it? And if five people want to research the same subject, they all put their comments. They all put the scriptures they found. Some things will come out to some people that would not to others. I can read the same scripture ten times and suddenly it will hit me. Oh, that's what that meant. I missed that. Like missing that Jerusalem would be desolate. Never saw it. It's there. A lot of scriptures say that. We've been told that Constantine's mother and daughter named the places in the Middle East in the 300s. I've heard that quoted. Can it be proved? Is that actually what they did? Can you go into history and find a record of that? There's a challenge. Is that saying true or is it false? We need to know. I don't want to quote it in a series and, found, and find out I was wrong. 
I don't have time to do all this. I can do some of it. I did nearly all of it on Babylon. And that was what? 28, 30 sermons? I forget. I want some help on this one. I want you involved. I want you to prove it for yourself. I can say, prove all things. You need to research this. You need to study it out yourself. Don't believe me. Believe your Bible. (coughs) Are you going to study your Bible? Will you take this challenge? Will we find out? You know, that's a pretty huge subject. (coughs) If Jerusalem is not in her own place, as Zechariah 12.6 clearly says, then where is it? Wouldn't you think the world ought to know, and we certainly ought to know, where Jerusalem is? What if everybody's wrong? My, I'd like to know where it is. I'd like to know where Zion is. I'd love to know where the place of safety is, for sure. I need to know. Don't you need to know? What about animals in North America, in the Middle East? Were there horses here before? There were horses, and David and all those armies rode on horses and chariots. Were there horses here? Were there cattle here? Were there sheep here? Or was it just elk and antelope? Buffalo? What about that camel's skeleton I saw over in Tacopa Hot Springs on the other side of the Nevada line in California? They said they found it right there. Were there camels here? I don't see many camels today, do you? I don't have any. Were there camels here then? This is a good question. Good question. Mentions lions and bears. We got lions here. They're not African lions, but they're American lions. They kill sheep. Did David kill a mountain lion or did he kill an African lion? Did he kill a Persian brown bear, a black bear, or a grizzly? What was where in those years? If it says that there were horses at Jerusalem in David's day, and David was here and there weren't any horses, then we got a problem. Scratch head, go research. See, there are a lot of questions that need answered and answered for sure. Need research. Need found out. Are there archaeological findings in that Israel that prove ancient Israel's presence there? I've heard it's been said, and many archaeological magazines have been quoted, that they have not found one scrap of evidence of Solomon's temple. They have dug under that city, through that city, and honeycombed under there. They can't find a shred of evidence. I'd like to have that quote in the archaeological magazine that it came from so that I'm not just blowing it out my ear. Is it true or not? What have they found? The Bible. We need to know about race. The Bible says all those tribes of Ham were there when Abraham got there and when Israel got there to take over the land. The Hivites, the Amorites, the Hittites the Philistines, the Anakim, on and on. All the sons of Ham, Genesis 10. 
The world was black when Abraham got there. That's a fact. And yet I've heard it's been said that archaeologists have not been able to find one shred of evidence that black people were ever in the Middle East. They're in Africa, south of there, but no evidence of anyone in the Middle East. We have Olmec heads that tall with Hamitic features that have been buried down in Central and South America because the Spaniards did not want anybody to know that the people of Ham had been there. They wanted to make a claim of South America and Central America and Mexico as theirs. And if anybody else could prove they'd been there first, then that blew their claim. So they tried to hide all evidence of it. I have heard DNA reports that there are Indian women around the Four Corners area who have the Jewish gene that makes them more liable to get cervical cancer. I have heard of the man Dan, Dan Tribe Indians up around Iowa, who are blue-eyed and blonde Indians. Would it be a good idea to research the DNA and find out where peoples came from, how much Israelite DNA there is in America among the Indians, and how much Asiatic there is, and how much Hamitic? As I see it, as I've said before, there were three races that came off the boat. Shem, Ham, and Japheth through Noah. Yellow, black, white. Where'd brown come from? White, yellow, and black got together. That's where it came from. Were the American Indians here first? Or were there some black folks and some white folks that made brown folks that were here first? Do the American Indians have claim to this land? Or does Ham and Israel? These questions need to be answered with facts. Not suppositions. Not I heard. I don't want to give a series of sermons of what I heard. You know, I've heard a lot of things that weren't true. I was having trouble getting myself into the right attitude today. Because I heard five or six negative comments before the sermon about this, that, or the other thing, or seven or eight, far more than usual. And here I wanted to give a positive, uplifting talk, and everybody kept fed me negative stuff. And I'm sitting there saying, shut up! <laughs> I'm trying to keep a good attitude here. Or get one, whatever. What about the Bible definition of the promised land? I read you three verses. There's many, many more. How do they compare to that Jerusalem? What about the geographical landmarks? I was just reading in Numbers, I think it was, yesterday. Uh, Gordon was near a place and I I saw something there and I was kind of reading alongside what he was saying. And I saw two or three things that were anomalies. That what I knew of the Middle East did not fit what the Scripture was saying about those cities. It just wasn't there. Remember that one that came up here not long ago in Psalms that talked about Mount Hermon and how it was in juxtaposition to the mountains of Zion? Seemed to be putting them together. Well, 
when I was over there, I drove up Mount Hermon, and it's about 100 miles or so north of Jerusalem. It's not in the same formation. It's not in the same range of hills. There are any mountains over there. So, how does this psalm fit? It talks about the snows of Hermon. I don't think that mountain hardly ever gets snowed on. It's just a molehill. It isn't very high, and they don't, that's the Middle East. They don't have much snow over there. It'll snow once in a great while. How often? How often does that Hermon have snow on it? If I'm going to use that point, I need to know. I can't just say, well, I don't think it snows over there. Well, what if it does? I could be wrong. Check out Mount Hermon. It speaks of the snows of Hermon like it's a common thing. If it's near Zion, if it's this Zion, and it's up on Cedar Mountain not far from there, it gets snow every year, and it's beautiful. Snow-capped peaks. What's the truth of the matter? See, somebody needs to find out some of these questions. And then, when you have the reference and you have the Scripture there, you can, you can uh, copy it and paste it on this program we're going to set up. Paste the Scriptures right there. Where don't just refer to Isaiah 13 and then I have to go find it. Cut it. Paste it. And then it's there. All I have to do is pull it out. Go preach it. Because you... Top-notch scholars went ahead and documented what you said. It wasn't your opinion. You found authority in God's Word or wherever else you needed it for some things. I read a little bit about minerals when I read that about the iron and the brass. And what I read said they have no minerals over there. We got gold and silver. Did you ever hear the Alaska gold rush, California gold rush? All those rich mines in Colorado and Utah and here and there and everywhere, all across this land? We produce gold and silver Boku and could produce more if it weren't for politics. So what's the answer? Do we have the facts? Does America produce more wheat than anybody else? Does Russia beat us? Are we number one? Are we number two? Number three? What are we? See, if it says you'll have wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and so on, then we need to know that the exceeding good land can be described and can be documented as being a leader in those areas because it exceeds the others. See what I mean? Where are the tribes of Israel today? What about Ephraim and Manasseh? I've postulated that Ephraim is the U.S. and Manasseh is Britain. Am I right? There have been articles in the journal about that. Here and there, there are more and more people beginning to wake up to that idea. Is it correct or is it not? There's a nice one to study out, to study the Scriptures, to compare what is here with what is there. What about the fact that Manasseh was the older brother and Ephraim was the younger? Who was settled first in this end time? Britain? Or America? Just a little clue. But there are more. There are many more. What about different scriptures that might show that a physical temple needs to be built? 
How's it going to be built? Haggai 2.8 says, The gold and the silver is mine, says the Eternal. Isaiah 44 and 45 say, God is going to give an unconverted man the keys of understanding of where the gold and the silver is. For what? To build the temple and to build Jerusalem, says the verse, last verse of chapter 44. Are we over here mining for no good purpose? Have you got an attitude about it? You think we're spinning our wheels? I've been digging off and on for five years. I'm getting tired of dirt. Am I wasting my time? Do I have an idea that's wrong? Do the Scriptures back up what we are doing over there? Was that where Abraham dug gold and silver? Is that where Solomon's mines were? Some of the Mormons believe that. They don't know the exact location, but they believe it was here. I know where there's a crescent-shaped mountain or hill with a round lake right in the middle of it. Looks like a crescent moon. They call it Moon Lake on the Spanish maps. I think that's where Ishmael watched Abraham dig gold and give it to Isaac. And he remembered the spot. And he drew it. And now the Islamic world does not know where they got their crescent and star. I think I do. They don't. I looked it up. I don't remember where I looked it up now. Somebody needs to look it up again and see. Document it. We don't know where we got this. I can show it to you on Google Map. Google Earth. Crescent, moon, and star right there. I believe that the things I've seen prove that that is a very rich spot. And I believe it's there to be given to a man that God leads by the hand and shows him where the gold and silver are so that we can build the temple and build Jerusalem and have the wherewithal to do it. I know several people right now who are waking up to the truth about these things. And they want to come here. But you know what? We're in a lousy economy, aren't we? They don't have much to sell, and what they do have to sell, they can't get a price for if they can find a buyer at all. (coughs) They want to come, but they can't. And we have a few who want to leave, while others would beat down the door to get here. What's the truth of the matter? If it's right, let's prove it. Some who don't believe it have said, well, I'm not going to listen to that anymore. I don't want to hear that anymore. I'd like to be able to show them without any shadow of doubt the truth. (coughs) Beyond speculation. Beyond gainsaying. Truth fact after fact after fact after fact after Scripture after Scripture after Scripture that either proves or disproves and removes all shadow of doubt. Does the world deserve that, my brothers and sisters? Do they deserve to be told the truth? Is that not what God once preached far and wide? 
that He is God and that His Word stands true. He says He's going to use those treasures of silver and gold to prove that He is God. How is He going to do it? I don't know exactly. Is He going to use human beings to do it? Yes, He is. He always has. What time is it? I just keep on going. Supposed to be shutting up. But we owe it to ourselves. We owe it to our brothers and sisters. And we owe it to the world around us. To prove these things once and for all. I've got more here of things that I listed and Rebecca listed some more. And there will be a whole lot added to this that need to be researched. And nail down. What does God's Word actually say? Now you say, well, this is taking longer than it ought to. Well, how long did Joseph sit in prison? Seven years. Couldn't do anything. Just sat in prison. Well, he kind of got where he took over the prison. How long did Moses have to wander around out in the desert in Midian, minding his father-in-law's flocks before he could deliver Israel? Forty years. Smelling sheep. How long did poor Daniel have to put up with Nebuchadnezzar? Crazy man. Stupid. Didn't know God from Adam's left ox. Wound up being so crazy, ate grass for seven years. Maybe Daniel had a leash on him and led him around to the good grass. I don't know. Put up with it a long time. Sat in the lion's den. Poor old Shadrach, Meshach, and the other ago. Had to go through the fiery furnace. They put up with that a long time. You know, then Nebuchadnezzar corked off, and then they had to put up with Cyrus. On and on it went. How long did Joseph have to put up with Pharaoh? Marry his daughters. Good night. See what I mean? How long did the disciples have to put up, the apostles put up, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes? Decade after decade. Yeah, but we've been digging too long already. This can't be. Come on. God can just rain down gold and silver out of the sky like manna. Yes, He can. But He doesn't. He never has. He never will. He has already clearly said, I will break the bars of iron and brass. I will lead you by the hand and I will help you make the crooked places straight. And I will give these treasures to you, unconverted human Cyrus, whoever he is. And we don't believe that. We believe God just ought to open the heavens and give us gold and silver. Get real. Mankind has always had to work to do the things that God wanted done. Always, without fail. And we think He's just going to give it to us on a silver platter? You've got to be kidding yourself. You're not reading the Bible. You're listening to somebody who is negative. And you're not paying attention to what God is saying. And I don't mean to be sarcastic about that. 
Listen to what God says. Believe the word of God, not a word of someone who is negative and trying to put down. I meant to get as a key thing today to number 13 and 14, and I ran out of time. But they sent 12 spies into the land. Two out of 12 gave a good report, and the other guy said, they're going to whoop our butts. One out of six said, we can do it. With God on our side, we can do it. Let's go for it. And you know what God said? God said, you unbelieving, stiff-necked, rebellious people, every one of your carcasses is going to die in the desert. But I'm going to let Joshua and Caleb go in. And that is exactly what happened. And they had to wander 40 years until the last one of them dropped dead and then their kids went in with Joshua and Caleb. Where do we stand? If God be for us, who can be against us? Yeah, there's giants out there, the New World Order, Satan, the devil himself. And when these treasures are given to the Gentile man who has told me that they should be used for the kingdom of God's purposes. I believe the scripture that says that, and I'm going to trust that God says that that man will do his will. As it says in Isaiah 45 about verse 8, 9, 10, I forget, right there, last two or three verses. Now, are you on board? Will you help me? We're going to post this thing. And if it's true, let's prove it. If it's untrue, let's get off it and admit it and get on with something else. Okay? Let's know and know that we know and prove all things, whether they be so. With a positive attitude, looking, because I think they are so. I've seen enough proof and evidence. But I want it proved beyond any shadow of a doubt. And I don't want to keep yammering at you about it if I'm wrong. And you know, I've admitted I'm wrong a lot of times around here. I was wrong about how to keep Passover. I was wrong about the foot washing. I was wrong about the names of God. I was wrong about a lot of things. And I changed it and you did too. Now, if I'm wrong about this, let's change it. If we're right, let's shout it from the rooftops. Because the Spirit of God, given on the day of Pentecost, gave those murmuring, competitive, vain, egocentric disciples the power and the might to turn the world upside down. Happy Pentecost.